Well, good morning. So I'm going to do something that I love to do but haven't gotten to do in a long, long time uh, due to teaching through Acts and um, doing the series on Titus, and that's uh, teach on uh, a psalm. The last time uh, I taught on a psalm was Psalm 22, uh, back in November or early December. I saved the dates on those. It was around that time frame. Um, but I love the psalms. They're the most quoted book from the Old Testament in the New Testament. And there's just something special about the things that are conveyed in the psalms that are not conveyed so vividly in any other book of the Bible. Uh, psalm 23 is obviously a very special psalm. I would say of things of the Bible, from what little I know and also hear from others when they talk about Psalm 23, uh, it seems like this may be the most popular thing in the Bible as a whole that a person may be able to quote or recognize from the Bible, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Uh, it's just it's incredibly popular. And I think there's, there's a reason for that that's kind of interesting. Uh, if you noticed as Brandon was reading the psalm, David doesn't ask for anything. So there's no supplication. There's also no like direct praise or thanks. He does talk to God in verse 4 and 5. So it starts with talking about God, verses 1 through 3, and then verses 4 and 5. He's talking directly to God. The pronoun switches from he to you. But however, even, even as he's talking to God, he's really just recognizing who God is and what he does and appreciating things God does in his life. And I think this psalm is so well known, not because it gives some kind of super convicting instruction or because the kind of adoration that's given is just really encouraging, um, but the way that David describes God here meets a universal need that everybody has. And that's a need for comfort, for assurance, for light, to make sense out of suffering and uh, chaotic circumstances or unforeseen events. Uh, the things conveyed in Psalm 23 are, are just, they're so profound. This is going to be, ironically, a little bit like the lesson in Titus, where I mentioned in Titus 2, we're talking about temperance, what it means to be dignified, uh, sound faith, love, those things. You know, that there's only so much to be said in one sermon when you're talking about those, those words that um, can mean so much. And it's the same with Psalm 23. I'm going to try to go through the statements made in the psalm. Um, but these, these words, these statements are so interwoven so accurately and so fully with just the grander nature of God, the narrative of his work things that God does in the Old Testament, things said about God in the prophets, things promised about God in the prophets, things that Jesus did, things he taught, things the apostles did, things the apostles taught. Psalm 23 is so interwoven with the whole biblical narrative. And I think that gets to a value of Psalm 23 as well with David, who is the author here. John 17:3 says something that for me has been one of those helpful verses to memorize. Jesus said in John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And I would argue what Jesus isn't saying is knowing God just on acceptance of information intellectually. David in the Psalms knew God, knew him deeply, saturated himself with God. 
One of the most special things about covenant relationships like marriage is how much you're able to get to know someone. You know, I feel like I know Eva better than anyone else possibly could simply because of the covenant we have and what that implies. And it's the same with us and God. So to introduce kind of the importance of this, this psalm and um, even a, maybe a more ambiguous application from it, how would you describe God's role in your life? Like if someone were to ask you, what's God's role in your life? You know, what is God doing for you? How would you describe God's involvement in your life? Ephesians 1.17, uh, Paul prayed that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And that's something that David obviously sought earnestly was to know God, to understand him, to have wisdom with discerning, here's what is said about God in scripture. What does that imply about who God is for me? And what he's doing for me, what he's continuing to do. Uh, Ephesians 3.16, Paul continued to pray in another section of that book, that we would know and comprehend with all the saints the breadth, length, height, depth, to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. To know and appreciate God may be the most important aspect of our faith. And that if we can learn to appreciate God, to really value God, and to understand God the way that we ought to, like Jesus said, this is eternal life, just that they may know you. If we truly know God, it will lead us to appreciate him, to value him in ways that catapult our desire to obey him, to grow, to understand his will, and to apply his will. Because the Psalms as well are very interwoven with many statements about the value of God's word, the value of his ways, as we'll see in the psalm. Uh, a word to Miguel here in Spanish. So Miguel, uh, estamos estudiando el Salmo uh, 23 y considerando uh, lo importante que es ver a Dios de la misma manera uh, que David. Para ver uh, lo implicado que está Dios en nuestras vidas e en lo que eso debería significar para nosotros. So we'll get into Psalm 23. Uh, the, I've titled it, The Lord, My Shepherd, just to emphasize how personal this psalm is. Uh, David doesn't say, the Lord, our shepherd. And there's times in the Psalms where he will affirm himself in communion and in community with all of God's people. But here there's something very personal about this. So let's go ahead and read the psalm again. It's very short. And then we'll kind of start pouring through some of the statements made here. Psalm 23, a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You've anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So we're going to start just talking briefly about this idea of David calling God his shepherd. Uh, to call God his shepherd is to describe God as his leader. It implies that David is just following God. And as we'll look at in some other areas of the Psalms, and in this Psalm as well in verse 3, uh, to imply that God is his shepherd and that he is a sheep, it implies obedience. 
It implies that God is the leader who has authority. And so whatever God says goes. That is truth. It is what needs to be done. But it also describes God as a provider and protector. And that's what David will describe very heavily in this psalm, that God as a shepherd is a good provider and a good protector. Um, And it also describes something about David and what he's acknowledging about his nature, not just in terms of being a follower of God, But this is a quote um, regarding the care of sheep from a farmer in Ohio. And they were talking about what someone needs to understand if they're interested in taking on a flock of sheep for, you know, a business or they're just wanting to get into that. Here's something that they said. The disadvantages of sheep and what their meaning is taking on sheep are lack of knowledgeable help. Predation, meaning prevention of predators, fencing, need for observation and management skills on the part of the shepherd and your resources may not match up with the needs of your sheep. So what this woman was saying is you may want sheep and that may seem like a neat idea, but the reality of what sheep need may exceed what you are capable of giving them. Not just land, not just money, and not just time, but even just care and involvement that you have to have a great deal of observation on sheep. I didn't, I didn't know this before, uh, reading some things and listening to some things, but apparently sheep will like fake being healthy when they're actually sick and dying. And so she made the point that you have to know really, really well what each sheep acts like and what they look like being healthy to spot very subtle differences in behavior that could imply that they're actually very sick and potentially going to die if you don't take care of them. You have to check their feet often. You've got to check their skin often. So again, the amount of care that's needed may exceed what a person is capable of giving. Not just land, not just money, and not just time, but how involved you're capable of being and even willing to be with the sheep. David says this about God, though. I shall not want. He's not getting lost in the sheepfold. It's not that God is overly ambitious and, well, David, David's needs are just too great. It's too much for God. He didn't anticipate needing as much as what, or having to give as much as what David needs. This idea of I shall not want is very perfect. Not wanting in the past, not wanting in the present, but it's an assurance that David will never be in want so long as God is his shepherd. That God has all the resources that are needed. He's as involved as he needs to be. He has the land he needs. He lays that out in verse 2. And verse 4, 5, he supplies everything that's needed. God is as watchful as he needs to be. The hard thing with this idea, though, of I shall not want, and this is kind of the beauty of the Psalms. The psalmists, most often when they're writing the Psalms, appear to be in situations of extreme want. But go back to Psalm chapter 1, and I think there's kind of a paradigm that Psalm 1 introduces, kind of gives an introduction to the Psalms on what's going on here. So Psalm 1, I I kind of view it as like a cornerstone to the Psalms, like everything is kind of built on the foundation of Psalm 1. And it says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, uh, which bears its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. 
but the wicked are not so. They are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So to illustrate maybe like something helpful with this paradigm shift. So Eva does embroidery sometimes. That's one of the craft things that she'll do. And for a lot of you ladies who have done embroidery, you'll know more what I'm talking about. But you kind of have this like circle thing that you have fabric over and you're like sewing thread through it, either cross-stitching or just like sewing fabric onto something else. Anyway, one side of it looks like a jumbled mess. So the side of it, you're putting the needle in. You know, sometimes evil be holding I'm like, what are you doing? You know, there's just like thread hanging down. It makes no sense. It doesn't look like anything pretty, but then you turn it over. It's like, oh, it's, it's, it's structured. It's beautiful. It's purposeful. It's patterned. And when we're not thinking in God's perspective, we're looking at the wrong side of the embroidery. You know, things from our perspective may look chaotic because we just, we're not seeing things like God does. Notice verse two, his delight is in the law of the Lord. So this is someone who's abandoned the perspective of the wicked. You know, this is, they're not taking their counsel. They're not walking their paths. They're not sitting in their seat, but they are meditating. They're, they're trying to really focus on God's word. And just by meditating on God's word, they're like a tree planted by streams of water. And this last phrase here, the Psalms put this promise to the test and seemingly take it to its logical conclusion, even beyond what seems logical. In whatever he does, he prospers. It's easy to say if things are going well. What about Psalm 22? What about Psalm 22 when the psalmist is surrounded, as he says, by like ravenous lions who are devouring him? And it seems like he's been taken captive and defeated. He even says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's still meditating on the law of the Lord. He's still trusting in the Lord. And by the end of that psalm, the answer to the question, is the psalmist still prospering? Yes. What about Psalm 6, where the psalmist says, every night I drown my couch in tears. My eye has grown old because of all my adversaries. Is the psalmist still blessed in Psalm 6 when he's drowning his couch in tears, dissolving it? The answer of the psalms is yes. So again, in Psalms, the answer to the the prosperity of people of faith is their prosperity is the Lord. Another example of this is Psalm 16. Again, dealing with this paradigm shift. Look at Psalm 16, verse 5. Psalm 16, verse 5. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. Look at verse 11. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. Back to Psalm 23. So as the psalm will continue to play out, especially when you get to verse 4 and 5, when he's saying, I shall not want, the tension is that this is not saying that he's not going to be without physical distress that he's not going to be without even urgent, seemingly extremely dire physical need. Earlier in the Psalms, Psalm 3 starts saying, his enemies were saying there is no deliverance for him in God. So when David's enemies looked at him, they say, there's no chance. He's so far gone, God cannot even save him anymore. And in Psalm 3, 
paradigm shift. He continues to see. God is answering. God is seeing. So I shall not want is from a different perspective. It's no longer looking at things physically, but as they are more eternally, as they are spiritually, which is the greater, the greater thing. And how this relates to us in John 10, this is kind of an anchoring point, uh, just kind of a hodgepodge of some verses in John 10, where Jesus is referring to himself as the shepherd. What does he say? I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Do you have an abundant life? What if you suffered loss? What if you lost your house, lost your car, lost your job? You know, is Jesus saying, I came to ha- that they may have life as in everything that they want? The security that makes them absent of distress, even if they don't have faith. No, he came to give life not available before and to give life abundantly in that way. He calls himself the good shepherd. He knows his sheep. They know his voice, just as what David is saying. He gives eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of his hand. Just as an anchoring point. Verse two and three, for the sake of time, we'll keep moving through the psalm. Um, Boy, if I spend that long talking about every verse, we're going to be here too long. So we'll try to get a move on. So verse two, verse two and three, God provides an environment of safety, security, and abundance. And again, is David talking about like a physical place where he goes? No, but is he exaggerating? You know, so often in the Psalms, it can be easy to think so little of poetic expression as in, well, it's just neat exaggerations. Listen, that's how worldly poetry is, where people look for arrangements of words that they sound nice, they're beautiful, they, they maybe represent some incredible concepts, but I mean, does it really mean anything really tangible? Not really, it's just, it sounds really nice, it paints a pretty picture. Is David exaggerating? Because he's not literally talking about a real green pasture where God takes him when he's in trouble. You know, that he's talking about something more spiritually oriented, eternally oriented. Does that mean that this means less than if it was a true literal image? I would argue not. God provides his people an environment of peace, of security, and abundance. When David is with God, David is safe. And he'll bring up in verse 4 and 5, even if that means the valley of the shadow of death, even if that means being actively surrounded by enemies like Psalm 22, everywhere David goes with God is a place of security and abundance. Because the Lord, as he meditates on the law of the Lord, as we put our faith in God, God becomes our security, not circumstance, not environment as it is physically. And why is this environment so important? It's because it's a place where restoration is made possible. Before I talk more about verse 3, I saw something interesting when I was just looking up things about sheep and shepherds. Uh, There was a family that I saw who owned some sheep, and they had a sheep. I don't know why its legs didn't work, but its legs didn't work. Like, it literally, it couldn't walk. And the sheep, you know, you look at its face, and, you know, sheep are always just so expressionless. So they're carrying it, trying to get it to drag its feet on the ground and kind of like move its hoofs a little bit. And they're having to carry him in like this special contraption for people all around him. And it went through a time frame of two days, seven days, 15 days, 20 days, 25 days, 30 days. And this sheep needed a place where he wouldn't be in any alarm, where there would be no predators, where he had plenty of food, He didn't have to be worried about anything where the people were going to take care of him. And all of this was important for rehabilitation. 
And the sheep, by the way, ended up being able to run and use its legs because of all the care that was being given to it. So its legs ended up working again, uh, which is really cool. But verse 3, this is an environment suitable for rehabilitation. He restores my soul. How important is that? That God as a shepherd restores our soul. He restores what is most valuable, most important, and most difficult. Remember what Jesus said about the value of our soul? He said, what does it profit a man? What does it profit if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits his soul? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? Nothing in the world, even all combined, is not as valuable as one person's soul. And not only is our soul valuable, restoration is something that's very difficult. You know, I'm going to use an illustration that I used in Titus a month ago with uh, the video that even I watched about someone who restored all old Singer sewing machines. And if, if you don't know, which I think most of you probably do, Singer sewing machines are like these like tank sewing machines that were made in like the 1800s, but they still make them. But there was one from the 1800s. It was rusted beyond recognition. It just looked like it just looked like trash. You know, there's nothing too recognizable or special about it. But there was someone who saw value in sewing machines where they, they learned how to restore this specific sewing machine. And in the video, the intricacy of what this person would have had to learn, the amount of tools they had to use, the amount of like different acids that they had to use, the yeah, just lots of tools. And so many little parts that were stuck in places that took a lot of work to get out. It was amazing all of the work, but in the end, he not only restored it cosmetically, it looked better than I'm sure it did before. He did some like laser engravings and just really cleaned it up nicely. Uh, but he even restored its functionality. It's one thing to be able to restore something cosmetically. Maybe you can look, make it look original, but maybe it's too far gone. You can't restore its function again. It just can't work like it used to. It's another thing to restore something cosmetically and functionally. And especially if someone's willing to invest that work. So again, the Singer sewing machine, that must have taken the guy a month to do this. I mean, it was an enormous undertaking in the process. It wasn't just one sitting. This was days and days and weeks that went by having to deal with all of these different pieces. How difficult is it for God to restore the soul? How much time does that take? How many resources does it demand from God? You know, Matthew chapter 1 starts with like this long genealogy that can be easy to read over it and think like, okay, names, names, names. But you know what that represents? The salvation of the soul took God thousands of years to prepare things to be suitable to accomplish that work. Thousands of years. How many souls do you think God lost along the way? How valuable is the restoration of the soul? And it's not just that God does this once. It's that this is something he continues to do and put his hands to. And that's with he guides me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Look at chapter 25 of the Psalms, verses 8 through 13. Just think about how David talks about the paths of God here in Psalm 25 here, starting in verse 8. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. People who need to be restored, people who need help, people who need resources, people who need patience. Verse 9, he leads the humble in justice and he teaches the humble his way. 
All the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth to those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? You will instruct him in the way he should choose. His soul will abide in prosperity, and his descendants will inherit the land. Verse 10, all the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth. How do people feel when they've been spending time and energy on something, resources on something? You know, they've been working at it, investing in it, spending money on it, and they don't, in the end, get what they promised, but they were duped. You know, think about something like catfishing today, where I don't know if you've heard about that, but someone like presents themselves one way online, you meet them in person, and they're actually like completely different than the way they portrayed themselves. The idea of people don't like being duped. And what Satan offers us is many promises without the truth that in the end, you're actually going to get what it is you're seeking after. Verse 10, all the paths of the Lord, number one, are truth. God promises us fulfillment peace and joy on paths that are rooted in truth and completely absent of manipulation and deception. Number two, loving kindness. God's paths only further our connection to God's grace, his mercy, peace, and joy. God's paths are paths of abundance. The psalmists suffer for seeking God. But as they suffer, as the Psalms go on, there is a momentum of praise and joy that reaches a climax by the end of the Psalms. Again, God demonstrating something that in verse 11 is for his namesake. God puts his name on the line. What does my name matter? What does yours matter? You know, if someone tries to start a business and their name doesn't mean anything, what does it matter if it fails? But if someone tries to start a business and someone who has a reputation for success and successful businesses, successful upstarts to businesses, if they say, I'm going to put my name on the line for you, this isn't just your name, I'm going to attach myself to this. How important does it become to the successful person to maintain reputation? Obviously, there's some pride that's probably involved in that, right? But how much should it matter to us that God puts his name on the line for us? How much does it matter to God that we succeed in our faith? Is God going to hold back? Is he going to neglect us? God has something to prove about himself so that more people are drawn to him and to his loving kindness and to his truth. God is out to prove that he is good despite what everybody in the world says, that he is gracious, that he is kind, that he is powerful, that he is able. Four through six, assurances we gain by his presence. So now there's a shift. It goes, he makes, he leads, he restores, he guides. Verse four, uh, I fear no evil for you are with me, your rod, your staff. Verse five, you prepare a table before me. You have anointed my head with oil. But verse four, David describes walking through the valley of the shadow of death, which I think easily can represent life's harshest and most vulnerable valleys. Uh, You think about like the valley of the shadow of death. I picture this inescapable canyon type environment where there's really nowhere you can go to hide. There's nowhere you can run to. It's just a wide open area. And this idea poetically of the valley of the shadow of death, it's as if this enemy is 
looming overview over you, watching you, seeing your every move. And so even in this incredibly daunting environment where it seems like you are inescapably vulnerable and there's no way you're going to get out of this alive, even in this environment, I fear no evil for you are with me. Again, this paradigm shift. And why is that? I think the second part of uh, the third part of the verse, rather, the third line, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Look back at Psalm 2 really quick, um, just to kind of give a little bit of an image with the idea of God's rod. I do think that the Psalms would convey these as two separate instruments. So in Psalm 2, it's a, it's a very messianic Psalm, Psalm 2. And this is God talking to the Messiah about the way that he would rule over the nations. And God says to him, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. God is excessively powerful. For a piece of like clay earthenware, what does it take to break that? You know, an iron rod, could you break it with something less than that, like a wooden stick? You don't need an iron rod. The the idea is God's power is excessive and intimidating. If God wants to break people, he can break them easily and shatter them, and it's no problem. David finds assurance in this, that even if death itself is looming over him in a valley, this enemy that seems so daunting and so large in comparison, the rod that the Lord possesses brings him comfort. Because God himself is more powerful than any enemy. God's rod can deal with any potential enemy or any danger, but then his staff. The staff would be the idea of like the more shepherding stick with the staff, or not the staff, the the turn at the end of it. And this would be something that would be a more gentle way of correcting and maintaining your flock. You could gently hit a sheep if it was wandering away. If it was fallen down, you could put the hook around its neck and pull it back up so it can stand upright again. So God's power of authority, his ability to destroy, is comforting because throughout the Psalms, David is faced with intimidating adversaries that he's helpless against. But then God's gentle correction is also reassuring. Can we be assured right now that no matter what struggles we may face in the future, that God will make sure that we receive all the correction that we need if we're willing to listen, that's comforted me. Is I've recognized I'm weak, I lack perspective, I easily wander. You know, I get wrapped up in sin that sometimes I, I, how did I get here? What's going on? God will never fail to give his people what they need to get on track if, if they're willing to listen. The thing is, we just have to maintain our perspective that we are sheep. And through the shepherd's voice, he guides and maintains the sheep. Verse 5. The Lord fights our battles while we receive greater blessings from his victories. That may seem weird because it doesn't seem like in verse 5 there's necessarily a battle implied. But look at the verse again. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. How does he have this peace and security while his, his enemies are all around him and he's seemingly, again, this poetic expression, God has prepared this lavish banquet and he's just sitting down eating while I'm imagining his enemies are planning on destroying him and overtaking him. 
And yet he's able to have complete peace even in the midst of that kind of situation. I think in this, there's a couple of situations we can think of that help. In the Passover, what did God do during the Passover? God destroyed and judged the Egyptians, the firstborn of every household. God went out and he destroyed every firstborn. He killed them all. What was Israel doing as God did that? They were eating a meal. They woke up the next morning, battle's over. And what did they do after they woke up and were urged to leave? They looted their enemies, which I think is a part of this image here that God gives even greater blessings. This idea of a banquet is prepared. You eat, I'll take care of this. We have to fight the good fight of faith, right? We have to put on the full armor of God. But so much of this poetic expression in Psalm 23, can a sheep fight a battle? (laughs) Sheep are one of the most vulnerable kinds of herding animals. They have nothing to defend themselves with. And even when they're they're, uh, attacked, they usually just lay down and take it without making much noise, kind of like they've just accepted their fate. David's not the one fighting the battle here. The Lord fights the battle while he eats this banquet prepared for him and is blessed even more richly even while surrounded. This idea of you've anointed my head with oil, uh, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 here just briefly. David was a king, which meant he was anointed. Uh, There's specific groups of people in Israel who would have been anointed by God. uh, And that would be prophets, priests, and kings. And although none of us are like physically priests, I mean, we're spiritually priests, you know, and we're part of Jesus' family, which means there's a royal nature spiritually to our relationship to Jesus. You know, we're not physically anointed as these people were, but the, the principle that God had anointed David because God had a purpose for David and God was going to see that through. Look at 1 Corinthians 1, 8 through 9. As he's talking about them awaiting eagerly Jesus' coming in verse 8, who, that is Jesus, will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. What were the Corinthians like when this was written to them? He's going to confirm them to the end blameless. Where are they right now? The Corinthians are divided. They're involved in various kinds of immorality. Later in the book, you find out that they are suing each other, taking each other to court. They are contributing to idolatrous celebrations and participating in the worship of idols. This church is a total mess. There's even people in the church who are outright denying the resurrection when you get to chapter 15. How is a church like this going to be confirmed blameless without Paul just going there himself and getting everybody right as quick as possible? Verse 9, God is faithful to the work he begins. I think in Psalm 23, what David is acknowledging is, is God, you began this work. You anointed me. You are going to see this work through. God does not fail to see through to the finish, to the finish things that he begins. God does not leave projects undone. He doesn't leave aspects of his projects forgotten or neglected. The Corinthians were a horribly messed up congregation of believers. And yet Paul has complete confidence they will be blameless in the end, not because of the merit 
of how well they're going to obey or how perfect they are or how well they're doing even, but rather simply, verse 9, God is faithful. God called them into fellowship with the Son. He will see it through. But there's another aspect to this. I just didn't have room on the board. So it's Psalm 34. There's another aspect to this idea of anointing oil, cup overflowing. Turn to Psalm 34. Again, I just ran out of room on the board. Uh, So this was meant to be there. Anyway, Psalm 34. Uh, In Isaiah chapter 1, among other places, God pictures Israel as a wounded, bruised, cut up person who has not had their wounds treated with oil. So there's, there's a medicinal aspect to oil as well, not just this idea of anointed for a purpose. Uh, look at Psalm 34, uh, starting in verse 17, and we're going to read through verse 20. The righteous cry, and the Lord hears, and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. God never fails, not only to fulfill his purpose, to finish what he begins, but to deliver from every trial along the way and to bind up any wound that's received along the way. God not only fails to do his work, but to bandage us, restore us, and complete us, even as we feel we are suffering wounds that God needs to cure. And finally, back to Psalm 23 again. Some of the closing remarks of the psalm. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Um, Think about this idea of the goodness and loving kindness of the Lord following David all the days of his life. Think about movies. What does someone usually mean and and what's the nature of the circumstance if someone says, we're being followed? (laughs) Is that usually like a good thing or like a comforting thing? And usually like if you feel like someone's following behind you, like a person, that can be kind of disconcerting. Another example is, you know, police. Uh, Respect the police. But even just recently, when Eve and I were in Florida for a wedding, there was a cop who was like right on my bumper. What do I do when he does that? I get in the other lane. I am not comforted by a cop being right on my bumper. He's like, I don't know. He's going to, I'm not speeding, but maybe he'll find something. I don't know. The idea of being followed is generally not a comforting thought. Even if it's an authority, that may not be a comforting thought. However, this is an extremely comforting thought. The idea of the goodness and loving kindness following David is the idea of it pursuing him actively. That these are God's greatest qualities. The goodness of God is about making things right. Things that are not good, that should be good, God makes those things good. And God's loving kindness is, again, this idea of God's covenantal faithfulness, him finishing the work he sets out to begin. And again, with this idea of going behind David, there may be a truth to that or an aspect of that Whereas David falls backwards, what is behind him ready to hold him and push him back up to stand upright? The goodness and the loving kindness of the Lord. Listen, we don't always handle temptation the way that we can or should. We don't handle sin the way we can or should. But as we're falling backwards, what is waiting for us to set us upright again? It is a guarantee 
that the goodness and the loving kindness of the Lord will follow us all the days of our life, relentlessly and reliably to the fulfillment of hope. At the end of verse 6, don't miss that David is not just talking about the temple. I'm not big on, like, associating truth to commentaries, but I'll just say this. I get genuinely frustrated when I look for maybe some helpful stuff in a commentary, which I already, I'll say it again, I do not put much stock in commentaries. I would often much rather listen to a humble brother or sister in Christ with a good faith than a scholar who is arrogant. Anyway, at the end of verse 6, um, it's frustrating when I read people saying like, oh, this is, an, this is you know, an image of David wanting to be in the temple forever and just kind of stay there all the time in the physical place. Nonsense. David knows fully well the temple is but a symbol, a place that as a king and not a priest, he had no right to enter into the most inner sanctuary, even the outer one. But you know what David could do? He could recognize that that building was a symbol pointing to something open and available to everybody, that God has opened the gates of his house to anyone willing to enter. And that's the place where true security is. Not just a place of rest and leisure, but that's where the Lord is. And where the Lord is, I want to be with him where he is, and I want to be with him as he is. And so David knows that all of this is for a purpose, to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And that's Psalm 23. What do you do with a psalm like this? Again, it's a lot of encouraging information, but a lot of this I think can just be, well, that's, that's nice that David thought that, beautiful things. I know this can be challenging, but psalms like this challenge me to see how much more I can and should appreciate what God does for me to be willing to sacrifice time to just talk to God about who he is and about his work in my life. To not just pray for the sake of supplication or praise or thanks for things that I've received, but here's who you are, God, and here's why that matters to me. It challenges us to appreciate God. And appreciation can go so much further than I think any of us realize. David wrote these things, not because the law just outlined it for him. He meditated on it. He personalized it. He carried it with him and he understood it. What does it look like if we study a chapter like Romans chapter 8? And it's not just beautiful sayings, pretty imagery, but it's carried with us. We meditate on it and we understand what it implies about God's shepherding work for us every day. That's the lesson for this morning. I hope this has been encouraging to you. It's such an amazing psalm. There's a reason why it's so popular in the world. But if there's anything that we can do for you this morning, these truths are available for the righteous, not for the rebellious and the wicked. God is the shepherd of sheep who yield to him, who, sur- who, to- who surrender to him and who repent. And so if there's anything we can do for you in that regard, please bring it forward while we stand and sing the invitation.